remember far back enough, we are in 2 Peter, going through 2 Peter, and we're at the end of chapter 2, chapter 2, verses 17 through 22 this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would protect your children from error, uh, keep us from, from falling into error, and lead us to all truth by your Spirit. We pray that you would, not just now, but, but throughout our lives, grow us to maturity, that we may have powers of discernment trained by constantly distinguishing good from evil, and let no one in this room be swept away by the, the swirling tides of doctrine that are in the world. May we stand firm, all of us, in the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, this morning I am not confident in my own wisdom to rightly comprehend the breadth and width of the gospel or to rightly or skillfully communicate it, but I need you. We all need you. By the power of the Holy Spirit, make truth plain this morning. Even in my weakness, even in the weakness of the hearers this morning, may we, the people of Trinity Reformed Church, be a people with eyes that see and ears that hear. We ask you for these graces on the merits of Christ alone. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and read Second Peter chapter 2, 17 through 22. You'll recall the context here is about false teachers that Peter is dealing with in this church. He says of them, These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is God's word. You may be seated. Kelly and I grew up in Wetmore, Colorado met each other at age 10 there and in Wetmore, Colorado, it was we were often it seemed like always in a drought. There was a few times where there wasn't a drought, but most of the time it, there was a drought. And uh, in Wetmore there's a creek that runs through, comes down from the mountains. It's called the Hard Scrabble Creek. And Hard Scrabble Creek would dry up in the summer times. It would go dry and, and in Wetmore all of the houses or most of them the church and the parsonage and Kelly's parents and grandparents who had wells that were old and shallow, maybe 
you know, 10, 12, 16 feet deep. And so when the creek went dry, the wells went dry. And so, so, so we really learned, um, I think in cities, oftentimes people don't understand why, say, farmers pray for rain. We prayed for rain. We needed rain. Wetmore is nearby some mountains, and oftentimes there would be, in the summertime, the, the black summer storm clouds kind of accumulating over the mountains, and we'd look with anticipation at the mountains, and, and they would come down, and the storms would come down, and we'd be excited about these black ominous clouds that might finally give us rain. What they would come with was usually more often than not just lightning and, and forest fires, the occasional sprinkle. Um, I, I can remember my mom, she would look at the pattern of the raindrops on the deck and she would rejoice when all the, the raindrops touched, when there was more wet than dry space. And I can remember one time in particular getting it just dumped on, just it poured and we all went outside on, on the deck and we were just rejoicing and, and getting soaking wet because it finally rained. I think people are, are like that. We're like a, a dry land, a parched land. We need to be wetted by the word of God. We're thirsty for, for a, a soaking with living water because we want to bear fruit in our lives and we need that living water and, and we're thirsty. I recall another experience in Wetmore. It uh, has to do with the church there. But My dad had moved on and, and we had stayed and we decided to we were looking for a pastor and it, would, it took like two years to find a pastor we were searching and searching and we'd get these guys these pulpit supply guys come in and, and they were not false teachers but they they were bad they were horrible not and they were you know nice guys and everything but they didn't feed the people and we were looking for this soaking with living water and we get kind of the guys with the, with the tips and like the here's how you are are, are the christian and, and you live salty lives and here's the little form that you fill out to with my sermon and we were i was starving at that point i can remember that that feeling of just being parched and then this man um, named pat came and he preached and he i still remember it clear as day he preached us on romans one and line by line exposition through romans one and i was just oh refreshed and i told him afterwards brother i haven't been fed like that in a long time. It was refreshing. It was that soaking of water, of living water that I needed. False teachers are these great dark storm clouds that, that we see over Wetmore. They're these promising storm clouds, never living up to their promise. Their yields, when they arrive, are vacuous or damaging, like little water, they're a mist, or there's a lightning storm with forest fires that follow. That's what we see. That's the image that Peter gives us in verse 17, where he says that these false teachers are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. Peter's purpose here is to show that what the false teachers offer, they do not supply. They purport to be the mouthpiece of God that to be conduits of living water. They're called of God, supposedly, to speak on His behalf. But their yields prove otherwise. 
back at verse 18 and 19, we see two things that they do here. First, um, for, it says in 18, For they, um, speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. In verse 19, they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So there's kind of two false fronts here, two false representations that these teachers give. And the first is that they speak loud boasts, and the second that they promise freedom. So speaking loud boasts in verse 18, there's this air of confidence that a false teacher will bring to the table. He will stand up and he will say, Thus saith the Lord, I am called of God. Perhaps he will say he's had a vision or, or God told him something. In the King James Version, I like the way they say it. It says that they speak great swelling words of vanity. In other words, they sound important. They, they sound grandiose. There's an air of the promise in their voice. And for those in the pew, it, it's someone that we look up to. It's that, that Saul, you know, Saul, the, the Benjaminite Saul, who stood a head taller than everyone. This is someone I'm going to follow. He could be really helpful to me. And sadly, that, that air of confidence and arrogant boasting is a front. The content of their message proves hollow. It's a spring with no water. The swelling words of vanity prove to only be uh, tasty treats with which they can trick and captivate a spiritually immature audience. Calvin says it beautifully. He says, he means that they dazzle the eyes of the simple by high-flown stuff of words, that they might not perceive their deceit, for it was not easy to captivate their minds with such dotages, except they were first besotted by some artifice. So it's those poor souls who were, who were just rescued from the corruption of society. The unredeemed have been brought into the flock of God. These are the people he's speaking of. In verse 18, we see that they are barely escaping those who live in error. They're barely escaping that community of people that they came from who live in error. Sadly, it's not the mature sheep that false teachers target, but it is the lambs that they devour. The second thing they do in verse 19 is they promise freedom. They dangle a false freedom in front of the spiritually weak in order to entice them, to draw them in, to bait them. And it is false freedom because they offer what they do not have. They themselves are slaves of moral corruption. Likely here that, that means slaves of, of sexually immoral corruption. We don't know exactly what the freedom they were offering was here, but it's clear from the whole of First or Second Peter that they were promoters of licentiousness within the church. And there's many references throughout Second Peter to this the sensual passions of the flesh. So they were probably promoting some kind of, of sexual freedom within the church. And we should not be shocked at this. Of course, this is prevalent today. Um, how often we hear of a conservative church, perhaps a, an SBC church or something where 
they, they're going along conservative and all of a sudden they're, they're an affirming church. They affirm homosexual marriage as legitimate. Or I saw an article recently that suggested that abstinence before marriage was an outdated relic. And this was in the church. This was a Christian article. Uh, Barna in 2014 conducted a, a survey and they found that 64% of self-identified Christian men and 15% of self-identified Christian women view pornography at least once a month compared to 65 of non-Christian men and 30 of non-Christian women. <laughs> that is to say, self-identified Christians aren't really that much different in that statistic. Now, of course, uh, I don't want to be insensitive. Many can struggle or fail in these areas or be racked with guilt over these areas. And they seek to repent and they fail. And I, and I don't want to discourage the souls of any who may be caught in that. And, and it's awkward to talk about, but if anybody is caught up in pornography or these other sins, I'd urge you to talk to me or to the elders because statistically, I would not be surprised I don't have anybody singled out. But it's important to come talk and repent and no one will bludgeon you over the head with a Bible. We are for true freedom. But many do struggle and fall in these areas. But the difference is that there are many others today who promote a sexual freedom in the church, being, them in sel being themselves in bondage to it. They preach the liberty of Christ while at the same time abusing the liberty of Christ. They preach freedom in Christ from the world while at the same time being captivated by it. And they preach that freedom from thirst, come and get drink, while at the same time they suck the life out of the most thirsty. They offered what they do not have. They are those beautiful, black, promising thunderheads on the horizon of a parched land, but when they come, they're a mist or a lightning storm bringing forest fires. I think maybe an illustration would kind of bring this home for us on how serious an issue this is. Um, suppose you have a friend that you've been evangelizing for years, a close friend, and you know the type of person who maybe is family, family situation is awful. He's surrounding himself always with the worst type of friends. He lives this debauched lifestyle. But then, through con your conversation, someday uh, something clicks in his head, and he begins to go to a local church. It's not a good church, perhaps. It's maybe a little bit of a, a fuzzy church, but at least he's going to church. He seems to be turning a corner. His old friends and his old habits are kind of less important to him. And of course those things die hard, but he is, as the text says, barely escaping those who live in error. He's, he's getting out. It's like a rocket taking off. He could crash at any moment in that first liftoff moment, but he seems to be starting to get some lift. Then you start to notice some oddities. Strange, it's been a year since he started going to church and he still hasn't moved out with his girlfriend. Confront him about it and he says, well, Jesus fulfilled the law. We're free. You heard that one? 
And he's starting to kind of give all of his money away to the church and confront him about it. And he says, well, the pastor says, I'll get it all back a hundred times. And his life is not at all marked by holiness. And the leadership of his church seems to affirm every move he makes in the name of love, in the name of loving him. Well, that's a painful illustration, I think, because we've all witnessed that very thing. The teachers offer freedom while they themselves are addicted to greed. As we read in Ezekiel 34, and I recommend you read Ezekiel 34 when you go home today. It's an amazing chapter about how God's shepherds are feeding themselves rather than feeding the flock. So this is a very serious issue. I don't know that I'm all that sorry for them who Peter says that the gloom of darkness has been reserved for them. I mean, in my mind, a grotesque, unconverted serial killer is a better candidate for mercy than a man who takes advantage of God's flock and the lambs of God's flock. We tend to be outraged at many moral atrocities in our world, but I wonder if we take this as seriously as we ought to. False teaching looks good to the eye. I think last week I said it's it's shiny. And it's like an ominous storm cloud on the horizon in a region of drought. But any preacher who promotes life, light, and goodness in himself, in his own self, who claims that he can satisfy, is a damnable liar. Because Jesus alone satisfies thirst. He alone is living water. Now, I cannot satisfy you. <laughs> My job is to point you to Jesus. Perhaps more close to home, I, I believe in the Reformed doctrine and the system of doctrine and I would die for many of those truths but a reformed system of doctrine cannot quench your thirst Jesus is living water the reason we love the reformed system of doctrine is because it tells us about Jesus Jesus said to the woman at the well everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. How different is that eternal wellspring of water welling up within us because of Jesus than that spring that has no water at all, the false teachers offer. So verses 18 and 19 seem to speak more to the unusefulness, the unfruitfulness of the false teachers. Now moving on to 20 and 22, they seem to speak more uh, to to their apostasy and to their damnation. As we read in in 17b, that for them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. So the outcome for both the false teacher and for their victim is damnation. And the Bible is clear that the penalty will be much more severe 
for those who claim to speak on the behalf of God than those who are duped by them. So verses 20 and 21, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. So there are some people, a category of people who benefit from Christ, from knowing Christ, but not knowing Him in a saving way. As Hebrews 6 says, they're enlightened. They tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. There are people like that. And this category of Christian can be known by several names. The covenant breaker, uh, the tear amongst the wheat, false confessor or false convert. Or perhaps if they're a person in authority or a teacher, they might be known as a wolf or a false teacher or false prophet. These are people who are, as 1 John says, among us. And they're among us, but they're not of us. And in that moment when they go out from us, it proves that they are not truly of us. They know about Christ. They know about Christ, and they receive benefits from His proximity, but they neither truly nor him know Him, nor do they receive Him and His benefits. They do know Jesus in a superficial way. And through that knowledge, they have escaped worldliness in a superficial way. But the truth is they would have been better off not knowing him at all. Turn over to Luke 12. Luke 12 is an amazing chapter. There's another homework assignment. You've got, you got uh, Ezekiel 36 and Luke 12 to, to read. <coughs> I'm going to read a larger chunk, and I was sorely tempted to read the whole thing, but <laughs> it's a pretty long chapter. Luke 12, beginning in 35. Jesus says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes back, comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table. And he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third, he finds them awake. Blessed are those servants. But know this, if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? Speaking of the disciples or for everybody. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and the wise manager whom his master will set over his house to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing (coughs) so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming 
and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given of him, much will be required and from him. There's Jesus meek and mild for you. He calls out those who know better. and He says they'll be cut in pieces and put with the unfaithful. Sometimes knowledge is damning knowledge rather than saving knowledge. Hebrews 10 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after we receive the knowledge of truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So this is, some people don't believe this today, but tr- fruit necessarily follows regeneration. Sanctification follows regeneration. Not perfection, but progress. So, I guess what I want to warn of is is that we know Jesus and we believe in Jesus as a person. That Jesus is a person. We must know him as such intimately. Jesus is not an idea. He's not a problem to be solved, as, as befuddling as the hypostatic union is. He's not a system of morality or a system of doctrine. A system of morality or a righteous way does follow from him. But we must beware, at least we know the way of righteousness without knowing the man of righteousness. That said, we also must persist. We must persist in what is called the holy commandment in our text. There are those who leave it and there are those who remain. And the means of persistence is to know and love the person who gave the commandment. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. So if we do not want to be as the false teachers, or if we want to stand firm amidst false teachers, we must start with a holy love for God. Because we'll always turn away from from righteousness as long as we fight to maintain a system of morality on our own strength. We need God. We need God to first love us. We need Jesus to live and die for us and to join us to himself in love. And we need the Holy Spirit to regenerate us, to take out that old man and put in the new and to raise our dead bones to life. We need to be born again. We need new natures. Which is where Peter turns our attention in verse 22. He says, What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So we see in this text throughout, there's kind of two sides. Either you can escape from the one side, 
or you can remain in it. There's the domain of darkness, that's one side. And the other side is the kingdom of his beloved son. The side of darkness and death and the side of light and life. And you can escape one temporarily or you can straddle the fence, if you will, for a time, appearing to be on the side of life. But our nature, our nature will always show which side we belong to in reality. A dog is inclined to return to his vomit. It's gross, but if he eats grass or something, he throws up outside, you leave him for five minutes, you go back, the pile's gone. And I don't care if it's a big gnarly looking dog or the most beautiful poodle, a dog is a dog. That is his nature. He will return to his vomit. A pig likewise, she, the sow, she can't help herself. If there's mud, the pig is going to be in the mud. That is her nature. We may be able to trick ourselves or others for a season or even a lifetime, but our nature will always win out. You will know a false teacher by his greed, and you'll know a false convert by his desires. Jesus says in Matthew 7, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every heavenly tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? Those are big things. Those are big, beautiful storm clouds things, right? We now cast out demons and do mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So what are we to do with this? How are we to respond? I think if you flip over to Jude, um, Jude pretty much answers that question across the board. He, he has it all by way of application. The end of Jude, 17 through 23. Same context, false teachers. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Here's my favorite, but you. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt and save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment 
stained by the flesh. I think that's what we need to do. We need to ask ourselves, are we building ourselves up in the holy faith? Individually and corporately, are we working to build ourselves up in the holy faith? Are we praying in the Holy Spirit? I was telling Michael and uh, Stuart about, I watched last night, the documentary on Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, it's called Logic on Fire. It just came out on uh, on Amazon Prime. If you have it, I recommend you watch it. It was really encouraging to me. But one thing that came out in the documentary is that he was devoted to prayer. And Sinclair Ferguson said, in Acts, when it says the, the apostles were devoted to prayer and to the Word, he said that order of things represented uh, Lloyd-Jones's mindset. He was a praying man. He prayed in the Holy Spirit. And he said that the congregation makes the preacher. So if you don't want me to be a false teacher, to become a heretic, please pray for me. And I would try to intercede for you as well. Are we praying in the Holy Spirit? Are we keeping ourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life? Or can we ask ourselves, how can we have mercy on the doubters? It's easy, as, as I said earlier, we can bludgeon the doubters with the Bible on the head. Or we can recognize people have questions, and that's okay. If you have questions, ask them. If you doubt the gospel, ask. Have mercy on the doubters among us. Or how can we save others by snatching them out of the fire? Some, some people need to be aggressively ripped out from the world. You think of that the man that I gave the example of earlier who's kind of just floating along in his, his church. If he's regenerate, he'll respond to just being grabbed by the neck and pulled out. Some people need that. Snatch them out of the fire. And do we really hate even the garment stained by the flesh? Are, are we willing to pluck out our own eye if need be? So what I want to urge you this morning is to persist. To persist in a true saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. If you find yourself attracted to the big boastful promises of freedom, which may, in many people in our day, supply, I urge you to, to run from those things. That those things will not satisfy. They're spring without water. Jesus alone is true, the true source of living water. So, so flee to Him, and none who are His will be snatched from His hand. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. O oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let that goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, I've taken seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Amen. Let's take our hymnals once again and we'll stand to sing a hymn of response.
hymn number 516.